the passage that we're going to be looking at today is one that I think will be of special interest to two distinct groups. Uh, one is women's Bible study husbands, and the other is youth group moms. Uh, so what I mean by that, women's Bible study husbands. Uh, several years ago, we were hosting a special event for our men's ministries. And uh, I, we've been brainstorming for ideas, uh, ways to get men to sign up and to attend because, uh, gentlemen, we are kind of notoriously noncommittal to signing up for stuff. Uh, you know, within the women's ministries, you watch them. And I mean, as soon as word gets out that something is happening, I mean, word spreads like wildfire, right? People are calling the office, they're signing up, they're calling their friends, they're posting on Facebook, all that kind of stuff. Uh, guys, it's more like when your dentist calls with a reminder that it's time for your annual checkup. We know we should go, but we start thinking of all the reasons why maybe we could put it off till next year. And uh, so I decided that rather than fighting that, I would use what was the strength of our ladies. And what I did was I made an appointment to go and speak to our women's Thursday morning Bible study, which had like 100 ladies in it. And I told them about the men's conference and said, why don't you get your husband to sign up? And it worked so well. It was, it was amazing. There are guys who still have not forgiven me for that. Uh, and then the other is, is youth group moms. Uh, this group is, this is a phenomenon I've watched over the years. And, and I've seen moms who, for a period of time, are super involved. I mean, they volunteer to uh, help teach Sunday school. Uh, when a Christmas play comes around, they're out there, you know, make, you know modifying bathrobes and, and making little sheep ear headdresses for their kids. Uh, when they get into youth group, they're, they're baking the cookies, they're helping man the fundraisers, they're going along as chaperones on all the trips. And then the kids graduate, and they disappear. I mean, not just from youth group, just, just completely. Just, they're not at church anymore. And you kind of go, well, well, what happened? Where did they go? Uh, my concern with both of those groups, uh, women's Bible study husbands and youth group moms, isn't really how many church activities they sign up for. My concern is that their disengagement from meaningful Christian community may point to something that is of greater consequence. Is it a drift from engaged fellowship that is evidence of a drift from a Jesus-centered life, because that's what really matters. The passage we're going to be looking at today is in Hebrews chapter 3. It actually goes from Hebrews chapter 3 uh, all the way up to Hebrews 4, verse 13. And uh, the writer in this, if you were to read all of that, makes this very dense argument that draws heavily on a lot of Old Testament imagery. And uh, I will warn you at the outset that the text requires some careful reading and thought, which is why I'd actually encourage you as we go through this whole series, and I mean, I encourage this all the time, whatever we're working on, uh, read your Bible on your own. You should be doing that, right? Uh, Hebrews for sure. Uh, we're trying to do basically a chapter a week, like today's passage, chapter three really goes into chapter four, but it would help you a lot if during the week before you get here, uh, you would just read over that next section and just give you some background because I just can't cover all of it on a Sunday morning and you really need to have the big picture. But let me begin by just considering one verse out of Hebrews chapter 3. This comes from Hebrews 3, 6. 
He says, uh, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, I've given this series this title, Jesus is Better, because that is the recurring theme all through the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is better. Uh, and in the opening verse of chapter 3, we find that the one that's being matched against, like who is he better than? Uh, the one he's matched against is none other than Moses. The, the writer says to his Jewish audience, he says, Jesus is better than Moses, who was the most revered leader in Israel's history. I mean, this was for a, a Jew of that era, something like uh, George Washington is to any red-blooded American. I mean, he's like the guy, he's the founder, he was the leader that helped win our freedom. M Moses represented all of those things and more to the Israelites. And yet he was more than just a military and a political leader. He was also the spiritual standard setter, if you will, for the nation. Uh, it was through Moses that God gave Israel the laws that governed everything from their corporate worship to their judicial practice, uh, even their public health mandates. And if you think public health mandates are something new with us, just read your Old Testament. Back in the day, if they thought you had something communicable, they made you go live by yourself outside the camp. So there you go. That's the biblical basis of health mandates. But Moses was that guy. He, he set all that stuff in motion for the nation of Israel. And yet, Hebrews proclaims that Jesus is better than Moses. In fact, the way Hebrews describes it, it says that Jesus is um, <clears throat> the faithful, that Moses is like a faithful servant in the house, but Jesus is actually the builder of the house. He's also depicted here as the eldest son. Moses was faithful in the house as a servant, but Christ is faithful as God's son. And of course, in, in their culture in particular, that role of the son, the eldest son, had tremendous significance. It was the son who held all of the authority over the father's property, who had all the rights and privileges. And so Moses was a servant in the house, and he played an important role for sure. But Hebrews says he still was subservient to the son. The son is the one who is over the house. You know, one of the things I love was that verse that I started with is this wonderful reminder, though, that it's not just spiritual giants like Moses that have a home in Jesus' house. If you remember what he said at the beginning, he says, we are his house. Through little old you and me, we have been invited into God's home because of Jesus. And we all have a place there. However, there is this if. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So he says we are in the house providing the one that we claim to have confidence in really is the one that we're placing our confidence in. We may boast that Jesus loves me, this I know, but if we don't really love Jesus, well, Houston, we have a problem, he says. 
is what we boast of, is it really true of our lives? And one of the unsettling things that pops up repeatedly in this book of Hebrews are these warnings. We saw one last week. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Or out of chapter 3, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Or how about this one out of chapter 4? While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Let us fear. And that, that's the kind of talk that kind of grabs your attention. Like, what, what is that all about? Falling away from God, somehow failing to reach his rest, maybe even ultimately losing out, being in his house. I mean, that, that's scary language. What does that all mean? And I think it's one of those things that it, it can make us feel kind of uncomfortable sometimes. And I think that's okay. The writer of Hebrews is talking to people that he's trying to shake them out of a bad kind of comfort and make them uncomfortable, make them think seriously about where they're at in their walk with God. We're going to dig into that some more, but I first need to take us on a little detour. Because I've said this before, Hebrews depends a lot on the Old Testament. And in this chapter, for sure, we're going to go back to Psalm 95. Now, Sarah already read the first half of Psalm 95 for us this morning. It's this wonderful psalm of praise. Hebrews 3 picks up on the second half of that psalm. But let me just give you the full context of the psalm so you have it in your mind. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. <clears throat> o come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, now this is where Hebrews 3 picks up. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, or as on the day at, at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now the writer of Hebrews focuses in on this second half of the psalm. And, and historically, what he's doing is he's looking back to this incident from the wilderness journey of Israel, right? That, that time that Israel is going through the wilderness, having escaped Egypt, heading toward what God had said was going to be their promised land. Now, if you think about what has gone on leading up to this episode he's talking about, uh, the people had already been delivered from Egyptian slavery, thanks to the plagues that God had miraculously provided. That's what finally got them out of Egypt. And then they had escaped Pharaoh's army because Pharaoh has this change of heart after they get out and sends his army to go bring them back. And, and again, God provides miraculously. They escape through the Red Sea. They then survive out in a barren wilderness thanks to God daily providing miraculously manna for them. And so their daily need is met in the wilderness. Then they get to this place called Rephidim, an encampment that 
the Lord had directed them to, but one that did not appear to have a water source. Here's how Exodus 17 describes the interaction that took place. This from the New Living Translation. The people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me and why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? They are ready to stone me. Well, if you read the story, you'll find that in response to this, the, the people's grumbling and griping and, and revolt really against Moses, God does yet another miracle. He provides water. He provides water out of a rock. Now, the way Psalm, the, the Psalm, Psalm 95 there condenses the story, it would appear that Israel ended up cursed to the wilderness for 40 years directly as a result of the incident with the water. But if you know your Old Testament, you know that that's, that's a big, huge abbreviation. <clears throat> that's not quite the way it played out. There's this big gap between the grumbling at Rephidim, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and God's act of judgment that condemned them to spend those 40 years out in the wilderness. But what you see is that the problem that got them stuck out in the wilderness ultimately was the very same problem that showed up there at Rephidim when they were complaining about there being no water. It was this lack of faith to trust God. Here's just a question for you to think about. Do you think that God, if they hadn't complained, would have let them all die at Rephidim? Had, had God done all that he had done just so that they could all die of thirst out there? Because that's the charge, right? You, you brought us all this way, and now you're just going to let us die out here of thirst. Do you think God planned to do that? I don't. Well, the final straw for Israel came at this place called Kadesh Barnea. And, and that was an encampment they came to on the edge of the Jordan River. Uh, that was the dividing line between the wild lands and the promised land. What the whole journey had been about, they come to the border of that. And as the story goes, Moses sent out 12 spies. Before they begin their conquest of the promised land, he sends these 12 spies in to go scope things out. And uh, all they're supposed to do is just assess what is there. Right? Their job is not to decide if they should or shouldn't go in. They're just kind of taking inventory. But when they come back, 10 of the spies go, yeah, it looks really good. I mean, it's beautiful land, but the people in there, there is no way we can take them. They are too big. They are too well fortified. They are too well entrenched. There's no way we can take that land. We are going to get killed if we go in there. Of the, of the 12, only two, Joshua and Caleb, say, you know, God has promised us this land. If God is with us, we can take the land. Don't worry about who's in the land. Well, unfortunately, True to that same kind of doubt that made them grumble about a lack of water, the people once again grumbled and revolted against Moses. Here's how Moses recounted their reaction. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 1. He says, You murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. 
The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Wow, that's quite a statement. Their cities are fortified up to heaven. There is no way that we can overcome this. What I find interesting is where this all begins. You murmured in your tents. It is behind closed tent flaps that the whole problem begins. Their private conversations about their fears of the future were allowed to erase all of their past experience with God. I mean, gone is the Red Sea, gone are the plagues, gone is the manna, gone is water from the rock. None of that stuff counts anymore because as I'm laying in my bed, talking to my, my wife one night, I start worrying about what may happen in the future. And I'm pretty sure that the reason we're here is because God hates us. Then Moses said to them, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet, in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. Moses says, you guys, <laughs> you, just, you just don't trust him. After all he's done, you still don't trust him. And, and this time, God's reaction was fierce. At Rephidim, water came out of the rock. But, but this time, the reaction was different. It says, the Lord heard your words and was angered. And he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. He says, you will wander in this wilderness until you die. You're afraid to cross that river? Fine, don't cross the river. You can live the rest of your life out here. See, I think having that background in our minds is important if we're going to really understand the argument that Hebrews is making here. I mean, the exit from Egypt really was a no-brainer when you think about it. I mean, they've just gone through all the plagues. You know, Pharaoh is scared to death, and he basically kicks them out. So choosing to leave Egypt wasn't much of a choice. He just says, get out. Um, Pharaoh coming after them with his army and crossing the Red Sea. Well, that wasn't really a big act of faith either. I mean, granted, it's, it would take some faith to walk out there with, you know, the water separated, no one could flood at any moment. But on the other hand, Behind you is an army that plans to either kill you or take you back as slaves. So again, kind of a no-brainer. Just keep moving forward and hope you can get away. But Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea presented the people with a choice. There was no hostile Egyptian pharaoh pushing them from behind. The only thing they had was the call of God that was urging them to cross into the promised land. Now they had a choice without any pressure. It was a land where they could see challenges. They weren't now escaping hardship. For all appearances, they were actually about to plunge into it. That's what God was asking them to do. Entering Canaan required more than just going along. It, it demanded this personal faith to enter into the battle. What they'd experienced up to that point was by and large faith after the fact. You know, what God was asking them for was for a faith into the fight. I had the opportunity years ago to go skydiving. I've actually done it twice because I'm just not that smart. Um, 
once with my daughter, once with two of my sons, because again, I'm not that smart of a parent. And uh, I remember the first time we went that uh, I was feeling pretty good. We get to altitude. You're kind of aware that the ground is getting farther and farther and farther away. And then they open the door up. And you realize that you're about to go out that door, minus the airplane. And, and that takes a certain kind of faith, a certain kind of belief. Now, there was a different sensation when my feet touched terra firma again safely. I, I could look back at the experience and say, you know, I knew it was going to be fine. I, I, I totally believed that it was going to be fine. I mean, that's why I went. I, I'm, I, I really believe. But, you know, I had a different emotion as I looked out that plane door and was about to jump. Right? I still believed all that stuff, but it felt different. And, and in a sense, Israel standing there at Kadesh Barnea has got that just before you step out the door kind of moment. It's like, am I really going to go out there? Because this could go badly. And that was the faith that they're being called to exercise. Now, with that background, I want to try and draw some connections between that story and the experience of the believers that Hebrews was written to, because that's the background that, that lies under all of this. So like those ancient Israelites, they too had heard words of command and promise. In their case, it wasn't from Moses, the faithful servant. They had heard the words from Jesus, the faithful son. They had a better promise because it came from a better promiser. And it wasn't just the promise of a temporal home, an earthly promised land. It was a promise of an eternal one. Uh, they, too, had seen and experienced and heard the evidences of God's power. We talked a bit about this last week, the place of validating signs can have. And, and Hebrews starts off saying, you, you have seen God's power. Just like those ancient Israelites, they had seen God do things. They weren't being asked to step out the door of the plane without ever having seen parachutes open. You, you know that God can provide. They too were facing these giants because there were a lot of people that opposed them at this point. This young fledgling church, these Jesus followers, didn't have a lot of friends. I mean, the Jewish leaders were actively persecuting Christians. The Roman authorities persecuted Christians. The Gentile community at large often scoffed and persecuted Christians. There are all kinds of people that persecuted Christians. And the one harbor of safety for Jewish believers would be to go back to their Judaism. Rome actually gave some room for being an Orthodox Jew. Everybody else was required to worship the emperor. But, but Jews were so committed to their monotheism, Rome actually gave them some slack. They got some special consideration. Christians didn't get special consideration. And so one way to take some pressure off would be to go back the way you came. I mean, it, it might be a wilderness back there. It might be a jungle of laws and regulations, but hey, at least it's the wilderness that we know. And, and it sounds safer. It's like those Israelites who could look back at Egypt and say, you know, we really had pretty good back there. Yeah, sure, we were oppressed, abused, starving slaves, but hey, it's the slavery we knew. It says, well, okay, that, that is maybe what you know, but it's not the way you want to go back. But this question is, why fight? Why face persecution? Why wade across into these battles? And Hebrews says, because wading into the battle is actually the place where you find a truer peace. 
The story of Joshua is this story of battle, but it's also a story of blessing. It's a story of entering into a new homeland, a promised land. After all the wars are finished, you'll find that Joshua oversees the distribution of land among the tribes. Joshua 24. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. There was rest in the land. The, The promise was fulfilled. God had provided for his people. And then they all lived happily ever after. (laughs) Well, if that was true, Hebrews says, why did the psalmist who wrote this psalm a long time after they got in the promised land, why did he talk about today hearing his voice? That's what Hebrews gets at. Why was he talking about today? It's like, yes, there was a rest in the land. You got in the promised land, but it's like there's something else. There's, There's another rest. There's a bigger rest, a fuller rest that we're still waiting on. We're going to get into this some more as we get farther into the book of Hebrews. But that whole system of sacrifices at the temple was this constant reminder that there were still things that were out of sorts between the people and their God. Yeah, they'd gotten into the promised land, but but there were still problems. There was still something that wasn't at rest between them and God. There's a promise of rest that is still standing. He says there's a greater rest. He says it's a rest that's only fully found in Jesus. So what does that even mean? I mean, are we talking about some kind of rest in the here and now? Or are we talking about a a final rest of life in God's presence? What, What is that rest that Hebrews is getting at? Theologians have debated that one long and hard. My sense is that the author of Hebrews intentionally leaves it a little bit ambiguous because that rest actually involves both. There is a here and now element of that rest, and there is a there and then. In the here and now, there is this rest that has been attested to by countless believers. A deep assurance, a peace with God, this sense of his presence and his peace and his love and his guidance, even in times of great trial, that rest is there. This freedom from shame and guilt, a newfound purpose in life, that rest is there. I was reading a book several years ago called Finding God at Harvard, and uh, I I love the account of one of the writers, a guy named Glenn Laurie. At age 33, he became the first African-American tenured professor of economics in the history of Harvard. And, And he described in his essay, he said, I had reached the pinnacle of my profession. When I went to Washington, people in the halls of power knew my name. Nevertheless, I found myself in the depths of depression. He'd often say out loud, life has no meaning. In fact, he said that he said it so often that his wife came to expect it. And not surprisingly, a guy who has concluded that the pinnacle of his career, life has no meaning, looks for some way to numb that sense. So alcohol, drugs became his escape. It's while he was in a treatment program that he encountered some Christians and began sharing their faith. And while it took a while, the day came that he became a follower of Jesus. Here's how he described it. He said, dead relationships came to life. My sense of the absence of purpose gradually lifted. 
I found myself seeing below the surface and finding a richness of meaning that I dreamed of but never believed to actually exist. What Glenn found was rest. But while there is that inner rest that God brings, I think we also recognize that we still live in a broken and restless world. And anyone who has lived very long on this earth, I think we can all affirm this is not a restful place. There, there is plenty of angst and drama and trauma to keep all of us uh, pretty occupied. Jesus preached the kingdom of God was just around the corner, but it's not quite here yet. While there is a level of rest in knowing we're part of his household, he says, we aren't home yet. Home will be where there's perfect rest. No more evil, a place of perfect love, the very thing that our hearts seem to be hardwired to long for. Being guaranteed of entering that rest is intimately connected to being in relationship with Jesus. Having our faith and our focus rooted in him. And the warning in Hebrews is that we not let our hearts become hardened and our focus distracted. Here's what he says in verse 13. He says, well, that's, that's not even it. Let's go up here. How's that? Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Isn't that a fascinating phrase? Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Little half-truths. Self-justifications, cheating at the edges, this gradual process of buying into the lies that our culture is constantly whispering in our ear. And if, if left unchecked, that constant dripping gradually dulls our spiritual sensitivities. It lures us into ruts that grow deeper and ultimately deaden us to the voice of God. The writer of Hebrews says, don't let it happen. Don't allow the deceitfulness of sin to harden your heart. He says the antidote is uh, to exhort one another, to keep waking each other up. Don't, don't let ourselves be lulled into believing the lies. I've talked before about how my kids used to hate watching movies with me because I could rarely just let a movie be. You know? a message would be inserted in the movie that just wasn't true. And I'd say, hey, guys, what do you think about that? Why, why do you think the lead character said what he said, and is that true? Oh, Dad, can't we just watch the movie? No, we can't just watch the movie, because that's the problem. Steven Spielberg once said that all of us who make movies are teachers, teachers with big voices. I go, that's exactly right. We are surrounded by a culture of people who want to teach us things. And Hebrews says, do not allow yourself to be deceived by that lure, by those lies. Exhort one another. Talk back to your TV and your smartphone. So does that mean that a sincere follower of Jesus is only as sure of heaven as his or her faith is strong? What, what does this warning mean? Because I don't know about you, but there are days and seasons in my life when my faith seems pretty weak. And, and if it was all about how good my faith is, how strong my faith is, there have been days that I've thought, I hope I don't die today. If, if, that's, if that's what's going to get me to heaven, this would not be a good day, right? And yet, 
Scripture is filled with the stories of men and women who were loved by God, definitely part of his household, but also people who faced doubt and discouragement and failure. I mean, think about the stories. People like John the Baptist. I mentioned him last week. John the Baptist, who heralded the coming of Christ, suddenly finds himself in prison. Jesus isn't doing what he thought Jesus was going to do, and he actually sends people to Jesus saying, are you really the one? Are we waiting for somebody else? Did I just make a huge mistake here? Or how about doubting Thomas? You know, everybody's saying, we've seen the risen Christ. He goes, well, I'll believe it if I can put my finger in the wounds. But I, I just don't believe that any of this could be true. What about Peter, who went so far as to deny that he even knew Jesus on the night that Jesus was before he was crucified? And yet, all of these flawed people, sometimes faithless people, we see God extending love and grace to and giving them important work to do. See, we don't secure our place in God's family based on the greatness of our faith. It's based on the greatness of his grace. Jesus talked about the transformative power of faith. He said, even if it's as small as a mustard seed. So it's not just, how good am I at trusting God? Because I've got good days and I have bad days and I bet you do too. That brings us back to youth group moms and women's Bible study husbands. I mentioned at the outset, the, these... This phenomenon of men who won't show up at church unless their wives make them. And women who stop showing up as soon as their kids are out of the nest. Now you've got to hear me clearly on this. I don't mean in any sense that going to church determines whether or not anyone is going to heaven. It doesn't. But what I'm trying to get at is that there are people who faithfully go through all of the church motions but without a genuine, abiding, personal faith in Jesus Christ. And going through the motions isn't enough. Going to church simply because you don't want to stay home alone, or because you just want to see some folks you haven't seen the rest of the week, or participating in ministries for their social benefits because it feels positive. You might as well make brownies for the band boosters. There, there is no merit in that. That isn't how we get to heaven. Lee Strobel, in his book, Inside the Mind of Unchurched Harry and Mary, tells the story of this 31-year-old mother. Uh, she attended some lectures where she heard the gospel presented, that our salvation is not something we earn, it's not something we deserve, it's something that we put our faith in Jesus. We come to him for forgiveness, and it is his grace that brings us into his family. And she suddenly realized that there was something startlingly wrong in her life. She said, I just realized I've been playing religion all my life. I'm active at church, I'm on committees, I've heard about the crucifixion so much since I was a child that I've been numb to it. And I realized today that I don't have a relationship with Christ. I hope there's nobody here that is in that position where you show up all the time, or you join us online and you watch all the time, but you have never truly formed a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not based on your great faith, it is based on his great grace. But I also note that the writer of Hebrews addressed his audience 
as holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. So, so this warning he gives, it, it, he's talking to people, he considers them part of his spiritual family. He says they're saying the right words, they're showing up the right meetings, and yet he saw some that were drifting, some who were pulling away, thinking about going back where they'd come from, like those ancient Israelites. Let's just go back to Egypt. Deconstructing their faith, and he wants to shake them awake. So here's the question that is burning in the minds of all of you good Calvinists. Were those people true believers? You know, I find is people who get embroiled in things over eternal security will argue endless, endlessly about whether or not such drifters ever were believers. Hebrews, I find, is a bit more pragmatic. It doesn't try to figure out deep heart issues that only God knows. It just takes people where they're at. If you love Jesus, if you put your faith in him, if you're seeking to follow him, then keep going. He is magnificent, and his rest is worth pursuing. If you say you love Jesus, but your faith is drifting, then beware. Take action to stop the drift. What is there in your heart? What are you caught up in? Did you ever really have a relationship with Jesus, or is it just fun to hang out with church people? See, being a genuine follower of Jesus is not just a one-time ritual that seals the deal. It's not like a t-shirt that you buy, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. When I married Burnett, there was an event I can look back on as the day that we got married. But the proof that I really married her is that I have lived with her and grown with her every day since for the last 37 years. Now, some days, I think I'm a pretty good husband. <sighs> Other days could use improvement. There may be even a few days that she kind of wondered what she got herself into marrying me. But she's committed to me, and my heart is committed to her. Now, let's suppose that on August 11th, 1984, I went through that whole ceremony. I got dressed up in the suit, I, I, I marched down the aisle, we exchanged the rings, we did all that stuff, and, and we went on a, on a really fun honeymoon. And when I got back, I just walked out the front door and I went and lived my own life. For the last 37 years, I never called her, I never dropped her a card on her anniversary, I, I never made sure that there were groceries in the refrigerator, I, I, just, I just lived my life and I ignored her completely. Would it be fair? For someone to say, Tim, did you really marry her? I mean, you went through this thing, but did you really marry her? I think that's kind of the same question we're being asked here about a walk with Christ. You know, hey, I went to youth camp, you know, and I, I, I had this, you know, it was a really cool week, big emotional closing ceremony. I raised my hand for Jesus, you know. But, you know, I've never done anything since. Did you really choose to follow him? I don't know, but did you really? These are good questions to ask. This third chapter of Hebrews is this call to action. It's a call to faith, to consider Jesus, to see him for who he is and live in light of that, to hold fast to the hope that we have in him, to open our ears and soften our hearts to really listen to him and follow him. 
to beware of the deceitfulness of a life that is lived for self and then the slow hardening of a heart that comes from misplaced priorities. To hold to Christ, Hebrews would say, is to find rest where our hearts need it most. It is to hold to the hope of the ultimate rest that one day he will bring. Because no matter what may tug at our hearts or what may scare us about moving forward in faith, Jesus is better. 